Welcome to What I Wish I Knew by Dental Head Start, your weekly mentoring session. If you're like me finishing dental school, taking PAs in endodontics has been incredibly fiddly. It really puts patients through the ringer trying to catch the apex when you missed it the first time. How should we be taking PAs? How many should we be taking? And can I just use an apex locator instead? These are questions I've been dying to have a clear answer for. And if you've thought the same thing, this episode is for you. Joining us again is endodontist Associate Professor Ha to help give us a resolution to this. We'll be talking about certain products and the EndoPrep app in the episode and links to those will be in the show notes below. Why is it still necessary to get a working length radiograph if we can just get it there on the apex locator? Uh, it's really just radiographic proof to help the tutors. Otherwise, it's a case of trust me, bro. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Because if the, if the tutor wasn't there when the apex locator said 0.5, then and you, if, if you were to keep soldering on and then that you have a finished product and you're short of length by what looks like two or three millimeters on the radiograph, the, the tutor's going to be like, well, how do I know you actually got to the working length? From a training point of view, it's also because even if you do use the apex locator, going back to what we said about rotary files and not going to length, it's very common for students, even if they get the apex locator length, when they use a rotary, they start getting short of length without realizing. And hence, when they obturate, they'll be very short. And they can't just say, well, my apex locator said this. And it's like, again, we don't have the proof. If you've got a radiograph of where your file sat when you had the apex locator length, then we expect the obturation to get to that point. Uh, so from a teaching point of view, we know that those two have to match. Now, once you're a general practitioner, uh, what you choose to skip will be up to you. Like you could always, you could always skip one of those PAs that you have in the middle. But when you're a student, literally the tutor owns your case. So they need that radiograph um, to show that you know what the working length is and hence where your, op- your obturation should hence match it. I've heard that there are certain things that can throw off apex locators. You'll probably scoff at the idea of leaving amalgam in the tooth if you're... Um, no, I'm, I'm not, a, not against uh, amalgam. Um, but uh, yeah, so because there's a lot of things that can throw an apex locator off, like officially apex locators are way ahead of PAs for accuracy. Like in most cases, the apex locator is correct. Um, there are definitely exceptions. And if a dental student doesn't know how to recognize the exceptions, that's a problem, which is why hence we like the PA, because then the PA can help confirm that uh, you definitely are at length or there is some other problem that's happening. So like if your apex locator said short and then you, the, the tutor sees there's a big amalgam, it's like it's obvious that uh, maybe the amalgam's throwing it off. Or if there's a big DO lesion that uh, carries lesion literally the saliva is just leaking up from the gingival crevice up to the orifice and that'll just conduct over and say apex prematurely yeah there's a few things that throw off the apex locator for those who follow my instagram app i'd have a very popular post that i've there's i wouldn't say recently but it's one of probably one of my last six posts which was a summary of apex locator yeah i think it's a very useful post that i made and it goes through Basically, troubleshooting with apex locators and when they will say uh, supposedly are less accurate. But there's also what I post how to overcome that inaccuracy. So, if there's a DO amalgam, then either move your file away from the amalgam and keep keep it dry, or replace it with composite. That's that's an option. There's one on if there's an open apex. Now, officially, it's less accurate with an open apex, but the answer is literally use a file that matches the the canal diameter. If, if like the, the apical like 
constriction. If you use a file that's closer to the apical constriction, um, you get far more contact along the walls and then hence it'll be more accurate. So there's little steps that I've posted up on my Instagram, uh, which I would heavily recommend students be familiar with. Like you shouldn't use an apex locator if you don't know how to use it. Yeah, I guess you alluded to that beforehand. Really, the steps of taking PAs in between endodontic treatment, uh, you know, in, in the student clinic, it's more about making sure that the for the tutor that you're getting to the correct lengths. But I guess once we do graduate, what PAs do you think we should still try and get? Yeah, what PAs would you recommend? Well, what's the minimums? What's the minimum? Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, so that, that you should always have a pre-op uh, that you took uh, because if the patient had so happened to have seen another dentist and then sent you the pre-op, even if it's within your practice Yeah, I was going to ask, even within your practice, yeah, yeah you should um, still- Because if someone, like if you know something's been done, like they took a PA, then they extirpated it, and then they sent it to you, what if they broke a file and then you start? Uh, if you then, you own whatever's in there. I because I never even thought of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you need to t- take a PA before you start. Um, and from a patient point of view, you, you, you tell them you just want to have an updated image of what's happening, which is true. But it's also to, to cover you because, um, yeah, there might be a broken file, a perforation. Uh, there might be the world's worst temporary restoration that's leaking all over the place. Um, you want to pick that up before you start. And there's also other things like if there's any anatomical risks, like if that tooth is right up against this, or in the sinus or the root tips are right against the inferior dental nerve, the sooner you pick it up, the sooner you can have, like, dodge a bullet. Now, after that, when you get your working length, this the working length radiograph, that I would argue is optional because if you have the apex locator length, Arguably, you should be able to prepare to that length reliably. Now, if, if you have a good technique, so your files are preparing to that length and you're checking that the files are prepared to that length, arguably, you don't even need to take that particular PA. Because you're conf- like if simple example is if you confirm with the Apex locator that the rotary file is prepped to that length, then they're prepared to that length. So why do we need that extra PA? Now, then it comes to obturation. When you put the, uh, the gutter percha in the canals... Before you melt off, some would take a PA at that point. The reason being is if you melt it off and then try to take out the, and then there's a big massive void and you try to take it out, it's it's a big it's a very big nuisance. But if you have perfect technique or close to it and you're very confident there shouldn't be any voids, arguably you could melt off the GPs and then take the PA. And that PA is just a just to make yourself feel happy that you've got a record of it. <laughs> the the last PA should be when the rubber dam is already off and there's already a good filling on top. And the reason why you need the post-op image is because if there is any... Let, let's say the, the patient has... Like, you obturated today and five years later, someone's wanting... They come, come back and see you and there's... It, the tooth's become infected or something, I don't know. If you've got that PA and there's someone else's filling in there, you can say, well, someone else did the filling. That wasn't me. <laughs> so someone else did the filling in the meantime and they did a bad filling. You've got a reference point of your filling. And also, if there was a lesion when you obturated, that final PA is literally the reference, new reference point of how things were when you obturated. So if, if in five years' time the lesion's 50% smaller, that's, that's still a success. 
but you've got a reference point. If you try to compare it with your pre-op or any of the images in between, it won't look similar because there's no obturation in there. There's no, like, the final filling is different. Everything looks really different. If everything looks practically the same as possible, then it's easier to compare the post-stop obturation with whatever view PA that you have. So now this, hence the absolute mandatory images, uh, the pre-op and the completely post-op after everything is off. You don't want to take that final post-op with the filling with the rubber dam clamp in place because when you take a review PA in five years' time, you're not going to put a clamp back on. Hopefully not. <laughs> um, so, that's, so yeah, the, 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 the pre-op and the post-op are the absolute mandatory images. Um, and depending on the difficulty... Skill level, comfort, Yeah, skill yeah. level or even yeah. confidence. Um, you may be wanting to take PAs with the working length or the obturation. Like if you're trying a new obturation system like warm vertical condensation, you really want to take extra PAs if that's like the first time you're doing it. And if you're very... If, if you've been hitting... Like 10 out of 10 obturations and no voids, one would argue then why do, you, why do you still need to keep taking these PAs? But if you if you know for a fact you're getting lots of voids and you want to keep adapting or your GP has often been short or whatever, then you'd want that PA. And certainly you need to measure your GP when you put it in and make sure it's going to the full length. If it's not going to the full length, there's almost no point taking that PA because you know it's not going to length. You need to fix it before you bother taking that PA. There's no point waiting five minutes in, in the student clinics, waiting for everyone else and waiting for the de- to be developed, or waiting in line for three other students. If you know your GP is not going to length, the PA is going to show you exactly what you yeah. what, what you know it's going to show you. Oh, I still do it anyway, don't I? <laughs> yeah, it's like sort of ho- hope it'll be different hope or something. It'll be different, yeah. yeah. Now that we've got a clamp on and we want to take, say, an interworking length radiograph or even an MGP where we've got, you know, say, three. Uh, MGPs and a lower molar tooth. How do how best do we go about like walk us through trying to take that PA? Okay, so the first thing is let, let's say you're using a ring system. Um, before you put it in the mouth, this is a very simple step. Literally hold up the ring and make sure the film is in line with the ring. <laughs> this this is it sounds really dumb, but a lot of students don't do this. So sometimes they set it up so it's actually facing some other direction, and all of a sudden, like the PA, like the film is literally blank. <laughs> it's like it, it, it rarely happens, but when it does, you sort of want to bang your head against the wall. But literally, the circle needs to line up with the film. If it's not even lined up, there's absolutely no chance you'll get the apex. You won't even get the tooth. It does happen, unfortunately. So that's that's the first step. The second step is for um, rubber dam. The rubber dam is not actually supposed to be, in most instances, taken off the frame. The frame is supposed to stay there the whole time. You're supposed to just unclip one side. So the uh, you basically unclip the side you're not working on. So it's a window to see where the tongue is. And it's stretching everything so you can see. But also, by keeping the rubber dam frame on, it helps keep the patient's mouth open. So, sorry, to just clarify, I think on your Instagram, I, I've seen that you've shared this like plastic rubber dam frame that, a foldable that one. folds in half, yeah. I think. Yeah. So, you know, like where I guess would you then recommend like, I guess going forward, like ideally once we graduate, move away from the metal frames that we're currently Yeah. Well, using. you should never use metal frames in endodontics anyway. Yeah. <laughs> because otherwise, <laughs> like, uh, yeah. So the metal ones, the issue is... Um, it's radio opaque, so if you keep it on, you're more likely to have an artifact blocking or whatever. Um, 
Okay, so if, if you're, let's just start off with the metal ones. If, if you, whatever reason you're using a metal one and it is going to get in the way, then sure, take it off. But, bef- but the, a big tip is if you're using metal ones and you need to take it off, which I, again, I don't recommend, punch a hole in the top right corner of the rubber dam, just right in the corner. So every time you put it back on again, you find that hole and you put the frame back on and you know exactly which corner sits to which because you know the circle was in the top right-hand corner. Uh, if you don't, yeah, otherwise you put it on, it's like, oh, it's 90 degrees off, and then you got to un- <laughs> unclip it and then put it back on again. If Have you experienced putting it on and oh, being like, oh, I've, it's 90, 90 degrees? I certainly, <laughs> certainly have, and I think it's also like, I think the patients don't really appreciate it either, you know? And you might, yeah, because it's all like putting different pressure on the face all of a sudden, yeah. and, they're wondering, and, and they can probably feel the fear on yeah. that you're emitting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> so no if, if you punt... Yeah, if you punch the reference point hole, if you're using a metal frame and you do take it off, at least you can find that position back very quickly. No hesitations. Alternatively, you should use a plastic one. That that way, it literally stretches the patient's mouth open the whole time, which then means they're less likely to bite on your files. They're less likely to move their jaw, like chew motion, like move, <laughs> shake their jaw as you're trying to take a PA. And then when they bite down, they'll just bite down as you need them to. But it just holds everything nice and stretched and open. Um, and it also prevents the rubber dam from collapsing in because that becomes medically dangerous if, if they suddenly inhale in their mouth and the whole rubber dam sucks in. So, again, that's why the frame is supposed to be there. Um, so, obviously, I have a disclaimer. I do sell the foldable rubber dam frames. And when it comes to rotary files, I'm not linked to any companies. I do have an app, Endoprep app, which has a feature from Densply Serona, which helps you pick which rotary files you could consider using. So, that's a little disclaimer um, but also, it heavily. If you go through the app, uh, it'll hopefully give people an idea as to what rotary files they could use. And even if it's put, like, literally offering most dense supply options, it does offer the four percent and six percent. So you could always swap out a four percent from dense supply with a four percent from some other company or a six percent from some other company. And I think, yeah, certainly if it's a you know, product that you believe in, I think we need to know what's out there, especially when leaving dental school. How do we? I guess, yeah, and I guess that would. That answers my next question is, you know, we do kind of cause, once we take the frame off, we do kind of cause a bit of a slobbering mess with the dam. I guess maybe moving away from, you know, taking the frame off, how do we just make taking a PA a more comfortable experience for a patient? Yeah. So some tutors will disagree, but if you're working on a lower a mandibular molar, regardless of whether the pulp is necrotic or infected or like any, anything, I would heavily recommend that you give a mandibular block because if the patient is not numb and you try to put a film lingually, uh, it can be very uncomfortable for the patient when they have all that stuff in there. And the more the patient feels in their mouth, the more they'll salivate. So if they're numb, they don't feel it as much. They're less uncomfortable. They're less likely to shake their jaw around and they're less likely to become a slobbering mess. And certainly by going back to stretching the frame, if the frame isn't flopping around in their mouth, the less they feel, the less they'll salivate. It makes sense why you'd get, like you're saying, if you're stimulating the salivary glands because the patient can feel something going inside their mouth, I suppose. It's certainly not going to, like doing a block would certainly help. Yeah, so it helps 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 minimize pain when you take the PA. And if they're feeling less, they're less likely to salivate. So I think the two, it just makes sense to have anesthetic in there.
Dental implants are now the standard of care, but for me, it was something I was lacking. I knew quite a bit about implants. I'd done a fair bit of theory, but I'd never placed an implant. I was looking for someone to take me from zero to one to 100 and on. And that's why I partnered with Morden. I found the support from their initial coursework through to placement of my first implant and then doing the live surgery course overseas was incredible. I've now placed a number of implants. I feel so much more confident and it's truly sparked a love and an interest in a whole new facet of dentistry. As always, we're offering our listeners a discount to help you get involved and help you go from zero to one to 100. If you're looking to take the first step into implants or if you're someone who has some experience and wants to take it further, check out dentalheadstart.com slash moredent and get started on your implant journey. There's, there's not just one ring system, you know, there's, there's multiple. Uh, and I guess there's also like Snapex holders and I've even seen one endodontist use like a really well like a hemostat to like with the PSP plate what what uh, techniques or ring holders would you recommend so at the Sydney Dental Hospital we use the Dentsply Rin uh, XCP which is like the the green yellow blue red system um, but in Adelaide we also use what's known as TrueView um, which is a 3D printed uh, system uh, and like Trivi works fine. Uh, I, I use Dentsply RIN system in most cases, but um, yeah, the advantage of the TrueView is that overall it f- it just feels a bit smaller. There's less components in the in the patient's mouth. Um, now the hemostats or the artery forceps, you've got to be a little bit careful with that. Like I, I've used it too. Um, but you literally rely on the patient to hold it properly <laughs> rather than just having the patient bite down. So it's good and bad. And it's also another issue is I believe it's not good for your X, like you're actually crushing the X-ray film or the phosphor plate and they're not cheap. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's an old habit and I, like from the chemically developed film days, which I am actually from um, when we chemically developed X-ray films. Um, so that one use, you're not going to use it on another patient, those films. So if you crush the corner of it, no one cared. But if, you, if you're moving into a fancy practice, uh, maybe not fancy, even cheap practice, but it has those phosphor plates, they will not be happy with you crushing them all the time. So just keep that in mind. And also it ruins the film in the sense that I think because the hemostats are so radio-opaque, I don't know the exact physics of it, but it's sort of, yeah, so that whatever's hap-sensoring everywhere else in the film sort of gets lost because it's been absorbed by... I don't, I don't know yeah, how to describe yeah, yeah. that. I, I, but, yeah. <laughs> saying, yeah, yeah, I think we all intuitively kind of know what you're saying. I, I've personally had, I think my first endo case I ever did, um, I tried using the RIN green system. I just found that for the patient that I had, it was quite a small mouth. Is It, it just felt a little bit bulky. Is there... Is that when you try and use a bisecting? Yeah, so um, the things to consider would be, uh, aside from having the patient be numb, is would a smaller film work? If a smaller film works, uh, because when you take a PA, uh, periapical, most of the time you're literally just wanting to know whether the file is getting to the apex. In most cases, it's like you've already taken a preoperative bite wing and PA. So if, if, you, if you miss the crown, not normally a big issue. So if you use a smaller film and, and you just so happen to get the apex, that's, that's fine. I think be, like, be realistic sometimes. 
in, unfortunately, in student clinics, uh, we ex- it might seem surprising, but we expect the best. So we expect to see the whole tooth, and you're graded on that usually clinically and realistically. If you've already, if you already have pre-ops and you take that bite wing and it's cone cut, or if you miss the like the crown's not there. But you see that your file is, you know, one or two millimeters from the apex, or whatever your yeah, criteria might was, be. Yeah. Then you, yeah, you've you've achieved the goal. Everything else might be a mess, but you've achieved your goal. So you've the, a level of re- realism has to be there. Um, but at the same time, if it's everything else, if you sh- if you can see the whole crown, the whole root, but the apex, then that's bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, um, and I'll move on to that because I feel like you know it, it sounds like a dumb question to ask, but I think we will often place an x-ray holder, you know, get the patient to bite down, line up the ring and the x-ray thing and run off to the, you know, the x-ray button, press it, and then we, you know, we process it and then it was nowhere near, you know, yeah, it's, so half, a, it's halfway down yeah. the route. It's not, yeah. So there's a phrase you can use, uh, it's called prey and x-ray. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, prey and x-ray. Um, <laughs> okay, so the first thing is, aside from making sure that the film and the ring actually line up, because some people don't even bother checking. Um, the the thing to remember is the film and that ring again. They, uh, the, those systems only ensure that you'll hit the film. They don't ensure that the apex was on was in line. So uh, after you put it in, before the patient bites down, you'll actually have to see how well is it going towards the apex so like whether it be lingually or palatally how well is it going down there are patients with very shallow um lingual sulcuses or very shallow palatal vaults so sometimes it's literally literally impossible for you to do a true parallel technique and i think it's crazy sometimes that in dental schools they keep on telling you that it must be parallel technique and it's like well, the patient's face sometimes does, like the, their jaw literally will not allow it. Yeah, inherently, you probably have to consider a bisecting angle um, if you can't get the film to go any deeper. And if you're doing a bisecting angle, well, the the, the ring and the film in most, um, in most holders are designed to be par- parallel technique. So you'll actually have to visualize and actually move the tube to create a bisecting angle if you're going to do that. Now, the, by chance, the true view is somewhat bisecting angle. That's that's a side story. But um, the next tip, I think, is... I've never seen it written down. It's underutilized. Um, it's when you take your first film, uh, and particularly if, if you're a student and your confidence in taking periapicals is very low, is as you take the, take the PA... Um, you need to tell the patient that until I have told you that the film, that the x-ray is good, please sit absolutely still looking in the same direction and please do not move your jaw left or right. And at the same time, you tell your assistant, please do not move the tube away until we have developed the film. Because the moment you take that radiograph, the uh, the x-ray, expose the x-ray, they usually just run in, move the tube to the wall and wipe it down. That sounds helpful, but if you miss the apex, you have literally no reference to how you took that first PA. So if you took a PA, everything's in place, and the tube is still there, and you see the film, and let's say you were too mesial, um, then the tube is still next to the patient's face. You put the holder back in. You know exactly where the tube was. You just move it a bit distal. Whatever you have to do to compensate, whether it be to move a bit more inferior, superior, mesially distal, whatever, 
at least if the tube is already there, you're not guessing. Otherwise, if you just walk back and start again, you're probably going to take exactly the same PA again. And then you miss miss the apex again. And and when you're in a student clinic where you've oh. got three students lining up, <laughs> oh, yeah, I, you know it's it's yeah. I, you probably have PTSD from this I, sort of thing. I think you're <laughs> I think you're so right. I think we want to avoid as students. We're trying to avoid that temptation to what what was the expression you said? X-ray and pray. The the idea of just oh it'll be all right. I just like let's just get a move on. Um, and sure enough, we miss. Um, I think it can be quite a awkward thing to do to sit have your DA sit with the patient standing still. Um, but yeah, it's just so, you're right, it's just so necessary because if you do, like like you said, being able to just readjust the holder, certainly from a learning perspective too, that, that's where the true learning of where our anatomy really can come in. Yeah, like yeah. If, if you see the PA and you know that um, like whichever direction it's short, you can literally then translate it over to the position of the tube. Um, obviously, if you're a centimetre short, maybe overcompensate and move the film of the tube two centimeters or three centimeters like you you don't want to move it just so you get the apex you obviously want the apex plus a bit more but no without that positioning you you would never know i I see see what you're saying yeah and and just finally to uh cap off the episode i guess we we get taught about like the same same lingual opposite buckle shift shot to use to like try and look at different canals can you i guess explore that and tell us you know like um, what exactly are we supposed to do? You know. Okay, uh, so it is very hard uh, to understand uh, without pictures, um, but just uh, a shameless plug uh, is in my prep app, uh, my app Endo Prep app. There's a one dollar one-off feature where it'll help you do the slob rule. Um, uh, so if if and I recommend if you do use it, you, you try it a few times on on a a type of dance, a, a tooth model first until you you get familiar and you're you're quick at it. Um, nevertheless, so yeah, if you've taken a PA and your file is not centered within the root, um, that's a red flag that there's probably a, a second canal, or your current file is actually in a perforation, which you should probably confirm with an apex locator, or or should be obvious hopefully on the X-ray. Um, so if you want to figure out where you are relative to the second canal, you can take a tube shift PA. Um, so now the slob stands for same lingual opposite buckle. Um, and so if you did a mesial shift, yeah, you place the tube mesial to where you had it before. And if the object or canal in question seems to move, uh, mesial compared to your reference point and you did the mesial shift um that means and then your reference point being the your current file that's in whichever position it's in um then the canal uh if it moves mesial on the radiograph then it's it's in a lingual position so hence uh being same lingual sl now if the object or the canal seems to move onto the other side based on, on the PA, so it moves supposedly distal to your reference point or of your file, and you've done a mesial shift, then it's on the buckle, so opposite buckle. Does that make sense? But then it's it's just so hard to remember that, so that's why, hence S-L-O-B. Again, it is best best visualized with images from the internet uh, and even have a plastic typodont where you put uh, a file, whether it be buckle or lingual, and put something else in there like whether it be a rotary file or some, I don't know, a needle or 
piece of gutter perker, I don't know. And then you just take photos from different perspectives. So if you move your camera to the media, you'll take a photo or move your camera to the distal and take a photo, you'll start seeing how, like, if you go straight, straight on, um, there'll obviously be overlaps, but as you move mesial or distal, um, there'll always be one, one of them will always be like mesial shift, mesial side or something like that. And then you'll, you'll start seeing the pattern. Um, so the best you can do is literally, um, I wouldn't say practice on patience. I'd actually say with your phone and the typodont, um, you can just take photos from different positions and then it should be obvious, um, the pattern that you'll see. Um, and it's not just for finding canals. Like it's, let's say the patient has uh, like some sort of pathology. Like if they have a if they have a resorption lesion, and you want to know whether it's on the buccal or the lingual, um, you can actually do this with the slobber rule. Uh, let, let's say yeah, you want to get into you want to raise a flap and get to the lesion. The last thing I'll do is raise a flap and realize it's on the other side. <laughs> um, yeah, that'd be bad. Uh, and if you're get, let's say you, you you hate endo and you want to get into whether it be oral surge or peds, and there is a supernumerary that for whatever reason you want to take out, you don't want to raise a flap on the buckle to find out the supernumeraries on the palatal. <laughs> um, it's a very useful rule. Um, so it's not just for endo. If you only taught about it in endo, just keep in mind it's literally important for um, oral oral surgery pediatric dentistry and like perio if you're going to re- repair resorption lesions um yeah it, it applies in more ways than one and it's it is true we have a cone we have cone beams these days but not every practice has a cone beam um and if it's something very simple uh you know, a pa will literally just take you a few seconds to take another one as opposed to sending a patient out to a cone beam and they have to pay a hundred dollars or more and they come back um, and then you've lost time because, you know, you have to send the patient off. So for those who don't know about the endo prep app, you've mentioned that, you know, you do have this feature where you can experiment a bit with the slob rule, uh, for a dollar, but, uh, the app is free to download. Yeah. So I guess what, t- tell us a bit about the endo prep app and what, um, students okay. might be able to use it for. Um, okay. So I'll just open it up myself. Now, when you're in sim clinic, you you probably have a radiographic software, um, to measure tooth lengths. So just going through, so the first feature generally you won't need unless you are, let's say for whatever reason, you're given a case printed out case report or something or on, or on computer, a case where there's a radiograph on the computer screen. Um, you can use the app to measure, take photos of it. Uh, and then you can measure the tooth, the curvature, um, particularly if the question was, you know, describe the curvature and how you would treat this case. Um, because it's not easy uploading images from like the, the internet onto a practice management software or radiographic software to then measure things. Yeah, that's just just just. So this feature is probably more so for de- people in developing countries who don't have digital software. Um, there's a feature called the MB2 Guide. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about all the free features first. Um, so the MB2 Guide. Uh, if you have a like upper upper maxillary molar, and you've done an access cavity. Uh, and you take a photo from the occlusal of where the canals are orientated, and you've only found MB1, dis, uh, disto, buckle, and the palatal, it'll actually give you a rough idea where the MB2 should be. It doesn't guarantee you there's an MB2, but it'll show you roughly where you may want to look. Um, there's a feature called uh, Root Canal Preparation Guide. Yeah, that's a paid feature. Um, that's more of a series of written text to describe uh 
when you're doing a case, what you may want to consider depending on uh, what you encounter in the case, um, so what files should you prepare it to. Now, there's another feature called Perisavacal Dentine, which is completely free. It does have some measuring tools there. So you, you take a radiograph of your case. If it's super curved um, and has a few other features, it might start drifting you towards some recommendations of lower taper files, um, so-called heat-treated files or pre-curvable files or flexible files. Now, another paid feature is uh, so the, the calculator feature. So one of them is tube shift. Um, there's one right at the. There's, I think the more exciting one I think is um, persistent apical periodontitis risk. Um, it's it's very dorky in name, but it's very practical. So as a general dentist, you're going to have cases where someone's had a root canal treatment done, let's say four years ago, um, and they never had a, a crown placed on it, and you're telling them to maybe get a crown. Um, now the question then becomes for you. Does it need retreatment? And uh, because if you put a crown on it, you own it. Uh, and like if you put a crown on the tooth and then the lesion suddenly appears, it can go either way. If you if you recommended they have retreat retreatment and then something bad happens, well, you own that. Like they they probably never had any problems, and then you recommended it and then it failed. Uh, alternatively, you put a crown on, and if it really did need retreatment, uh, and then it played up. Um, you own that too. So this put like rather than putting people into fear, it actually puts the statistical likelihood of um, like yeah, like if it's forty percent likely to need retreatment, um, some would argue let's just watch, let's put a crown on it, unless if if it does, well they're unlucky, but you know odds are they won't need it a retreatment. But if it was like eighty percent likelihood that it'll need retreatment, then you probably should heavily recommend it before you you, you um, put a crown on it or something. But anyway, it does. So there are some calculations based off a published paper where they had all these patients. Yeah. Anyway, so there's a few different little things that I think are quite handy. But the tube shift one is, for the purposes of today's conversation, I think is quite good. And uh, this online study guide, which just gives links to various papers, endodontic emergencies, I think, is very popular uh, and makes a lot of sense for everyone because. So let's say we're talking about hypochloride. You say a lot of students were, are really afraid of it. So let's say, I don't know, in the clinic tomorrow, you know, heaven forbid, you have a hypochloride extrusion. You have the app, free feature. You literally press hypochloride extrusion, um, and then there's you click on immediate management, and it lists out immediate management, and it's all there. Uh, if you were right now to Google, like, look on the internet how to manage hypochloride injury, like you'll find, like, I don't know, like an... 3,000-word 3, essay or something. And it'll start off about, you know, what is hypochloride? And then you're like, I, I know that already. Let's just skip to the management, please. And then it'll have diagnosis, which you know, it's obviously good to learn about prevention and diagnosis. But for the instant that you have it, you don't have time to read about it. You just want to get to the management. So all the information is there. And then you can always click back to look at uh, uh, prevention and diagnosis. And there's also long-term management because that's a little bit different. Because you don't want to be reading up long-term management about you know how to review the patient when right now the patient's screaming in pain. So, <laughs> um, so there's other things too. But um, anyway, so there's uh, dental legal articles, uh, which I think is useful for you know, how, how do you talk to a patient when you break a file or something. Um, and then the last one is loops and microscopes guide. Um, so I'll just give some ideas on like, how to find loops 
Um, and for those who want to get into microscopes, like how to use a microscope, it's quite diverse. And again, like the, the, the app is free. There's only, yeah, so it's a $1 one-off purchase. So it's not like you need to keep paying $1 every time you want to use the feature. I think some people are a bit worried about that. Um, it's literally a one-off dollar feature, which I, I'm not retiring on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's really, um, so for some people, like some academics, they obsess about writing textbook chapters or something. And honestly, like things like this app um, and my social media page, like, it has such a far bigger reach than you know, publishing a textbook that honestly, how many students buy textbooks these days? And academics used to focus so heavily on, on textbooks, publishing textbooks, like it was sort of the pinnacle of their career. But I think the, the test of an academic's worth, I guess, is how well they can reach not just to their students, but to other people. And if you can educate people, whether it be social media or apps or anything else, like giving talks, then you're far more effective educator than anyone who's not doing those things. And Associate Professor Ha, you've done a very good job at that as well. And we really appreciate you being on here on the episode. So thank you so much. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Dental Head Start podcast. I genuinely hope this is helping you become a better dentist. So if you like what you're hearing, make sure you subscribe on your podcast player and I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go to social media and share something that you've appreciated from us with one of your friends. That's how the word gets out. That's how more people gain and benefit from what we're doing. And if you're a dental student or a graduate and you want to get a head start, go to dentalheadstart.com to find everything we're doing to help dental students become great dentists.